You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. Good morning, Redemption Olds. Um, get that worked out, sorry. Good morning. Welcome here today. Uh, John told me I'd probably be preaching in front of like 10 people, so... Uh, no, happy to see everyone here this summer. Uh, kids, you can be dismissed to your class. Your teachers will be at the back or down in your classroom waiting for you. Well, I'm honored to stand here today um, bringing you guys the Word of God. It's a great pleasure of mine, and for a few reasons, I'm excited to be here today. One, because I think that the providence of the Lord has fallen gracefully on me, that I got this portion of text, this fourth sermon in our, in our series of Ecclesiastes. So three men have preached faithfully before me. That's um, Corey Dyer started off, Brian McIver took week two, Paul took week three, and um, I'm going to recap some of this. Uh, Corey's not here to call me out, I don't think, on my little jet plane analogy I'm going to use. But we're going to go fast like a jet plane. We're going to take off. I'm going to recap some of what we learned over the last three weeks um, because it all kind of ties into what we're going to be learning today. We have a summation of what we've been looking at. Uh, So we're going to do a quick introduction. We're going to run through it, and then we're going to get into the text. So bear with me here. As a little side note, too, it's also been my prayers for the church body as a whole for our small groups, um, that we are actually applying what we're learning in small groups to what we're doing here in this study. So we're back to a verse-by-verse study. We're exegetically going through the book of Ecclesiastes. We're not in a topical sermon. So we know, as listeners of the congregation, what text is next week. Uh, It's our duty to be working through that to come prepared on Sunday mornings Um, So the same techniques you've been learning in small groups of asking questions in the text, um, interrogating the text, praying about it, meditating on it, and then drawing out application. I hope that we're all doing that as we come here on Sunday. There's a few reasons for that. One of them is that it's it's your duty to hold us preachers accountable for the Word of God and what's in here. Uh, If we're not preaching what's in the Word of God here, it's your guys' duty to call us out on it or correct us. Um, So be doing that. Now for more side notes, if you're not in a small group and you're a regular attendee here, get connected into a small group. It's one of the primary ways that we can minister, the leaders can minister to everybody as a body. Um, See an elder, see Jared at the back for connect team information uh, regarding getting connected. Uh, Also, if you're not sure of what text is next, call a friend, uh, call an elder, their information's in the newsletters, or, or just ask somebody and find out what text is next week and work through it with your friend, work through it with somebody to find out what's coming up. Um, and 
And lastly, yeah, if you don't get the church newsletters, see Jared in the back and he'll get you connected with all the church newsletters. Let me pray for us today. Uh, Heavenly Father, it is a blessing to be here today in this building, but it's a blessing to be united as a body, Father. Uh, move through us today, Lord, as we listen. Move through us today as we work through um, seeing what the author of this book of Ecclesiastes has for us as he pours out his heart to us. And would we be like him and pour out our heart to each other, our, our true pains, our joys, our experiences in life. Draw us closer as a body, Lord. I pray this for uh, the whole body, and I pray this in your mighty name, Lord Jesus. Awesome. So like I alluded to earlier today, uh, in, in my eyes, this is, this is a beautiful crossroads of the text. So we had Corey, Brian, and Paul teaching us different parts as what this author sees life described as in the book of Ecclesiastes, and that's through the lens of Quohelet. Quohelet is the, the term used to describe the author, and the term Quohelet lies in the English word gatherer, so as Paul described to us, he is literally a assembler or a gatherer of people. That was Quahelet's role in this book. He's gathering people to teach them. So Corey set the stage by unpacking for us some major themes, context, and portions of this book. So in verses 1 through 11 of Ecclesiastes, feel free to turn to it in your Bibles if you're not already there. Um, if you need a Bible, there should be one in front of you in the pew or pull out your phone. Uh, if you need a Bible, take this one, keep it with you, whatever. It's yours as a gift from the church. So the opening two verses describe for us how life is havel. It's meaningless, it's fleeting, like smoke or vapor, it's impossible to grasp. And we're seeing that each morning in the cool bumper video that's been uh, put together for us. It, it was thoughtfully crafted, every word in it was thoughtfully crafted, every, every, most of the images and the smoke portion especially. So it's impossible to reach out and grasp life. It's impossible to take control of it. And as quickly as it appears before us, it can disappear. It's gone. Uh, I read in a commentary while I was studying this, this Hevel uh, word and this concept that the act of trying to control it is actually like attempting to herd the wind. Uh, so for you farmers out there, it should be a little better imagery, but you can't actually herd the wind. It will come and it will go. Uh, Corey referred to this as tiring and wearying. So we find no gain whatsoever in this toil. We find no gain in trying to control life. And then in the following verses, the author describes for us a, a very physical flow to life. So in, in verses, I, I think, three or sorry, four till 11, we see these, these cycles and these flows. And, uh, and Corey actually alluded while we were studying this to, to the word turn, turn, turn by the birds. I don't know if anyone's familiar with that. But every time I open up the book, I, it tends to ring through my head now. And um, it, it's just a good reminder of how Ecclesiastes has infiltrated uh, so many different aspects of our culture today. Poetry, um, funerals, in eulogies, lots of Ecclesiastes is read. Everyday sayings that we have, and even the music we listen to, like Turn, Turn, Turn by the Birds. And I was listening to another song last week while I was changing my tires and the, the author of the song actually said, whoever said there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, that, I mean, that's from the book of Ecclesiastes. There's nothing new under the sun. It was hilarious. I laughed. <laughs> so, But listen to this quickly. Here's a quick overview of these flows. A generation goes and a generation comes. The sun rises and the sun goes down. 
The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. All streams run to the sea. So there's some very obvious cycles that Quahelet wants to make sure that we see here. And the end, at the end of each cycle, in verses 1 through 11, he describes the havel of all of it. We, we cannot control it. We can't grasp it. The creator of all things that has made everything to work this way, um, and no matter what your views on climate change are, no matter what your views are on the, the age of the earth, whether it's millions of years or thousands of years, the, the fact of the matter is that the creator of all heavens and earth has built this. We can't control it. And he knows every star in the sky. He knows all the blades of grass that sprout here in Alberta and across the world. He, he knows everything. And it's him who will come bringing more destruction to this earth than we can ever do by what we're doing here. Um, and he promises to restore to us a new heaven and a new earth. And normally, I would, I would put Revelation 21 in here, but we're going to carry on. Um, but think about that. So then in week two, Brian came up. He preached faithfully about man's wisdom versus God's wisdom. We see that in verses 12 through 18. Brian made it his goal to help us see, and he put this really well, that while examining and confronting man's wisdom, we will be brought face to face with the beauty and hope of God's wisdom. And so he showed us how there's woven intricacies in this book um, that use Proverbs from that time period, as well as Proverbs from our Bibles, and, and wisdom mixed in from both that time period and, and wisdom found in our Bibles. Um, and all of that is to make more clear our chief goal in life, which is ultimately to glorify God. So Brian also expanded for us a little bit about this Hebraism that we see used over and over again, and that's under the sun, and how this can also be used in the text as literally a life lived apart from God. Um, so whether it's a physical under the sun or, or a spiritual under the sun, we are separated from God in that, in that Hebraism. That's the idea of it, and it's a key to this book. So I hope that some of these things are sticking with us as we go through, or you're looking back in your notes, and you're like, oh yeah, I remember that. Um, because they are keys to understanding this book as a whole as we go through all 12 chapters. Uh, week three, Paul unpacks some of the context for us about the author himself, about Quahelet. And it is, it's important that we understand context of an author as well as a book in a time period in history um, because we should be asking about the author, like the, the who, what, where, when of the author. What, what surrounds him? Where is his mind at? Uh, what's his life look like at the time? So we know from Paul's examination that Solomon wasn't walking with the Lord at this time period. And we realize that by the use of Elohim instead of Yahweh. So you see God written in here. Whenever it's referred to, you see God. You don't see Lord in all caps. That would be Yahweh. And it's this key also that helps us understand that sometimes the wisdom of this book appears to contradict itself. Uh, Paul pointed out an example in verses 13 through 15 of chapter 2. And we have a, a mixture of Near Eastern wisdom mixed in with divine wisdom. It's, it's something you see in the book of Job as well. Or sometimes like, that, that sounds right, but it's not quite right. Uh, there's grace and mercy from God mixed in there as well, which is kind of the trump card. But a right perspective of the author helps us to see that the Near Eastern wisdom that's given 
is from a life lived under the S-U-N, under the sun, um, or apart from God. So like I said, I've taken this time today to recap and highlight um, because in verses 18 through 26, so we're in chapter 2, verses 18 through 26, we're brought to a place where Kohelet looks back on his life and he looks back on all the experiences he's had under the sun. Uh, He looks back at everything that he's come to understand to this point in his life, everything that he's acquired physically, physical wealth, Um, And and we look back on everything he's done, his work, and we are brought to what he expresses as a very low and depressed state as he looks back. He realizes that everything is Havel, and this is where we get that theme from. Everything is vanity. It it means nothing. It's meaningless. So open up and let's read with me to chapter 2, verses 17 through 26. So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. So back in chapter 1, Kohelet is explaining the futility that he sees in all of life. The empty attempts to control or the flow of the world Uh, moves on to the unhappy business, the vexation of gathering wisdom. Chapter 2, we see the emptiness of acquiring physical wealth and the meaningless gain of both living overly wise and also the folly of foolishness. And last, the depressing reality to all of our toil in which we're given under the sun. So these topics that have been chosen in this introduction to the book I think we're, we're, very, we're chosen very tactfully by the author and by God himself as a brief summation of life. In this, in this intro, we see the physical world around us. We see our mental realm, wisdom and folly. We see our worldly possessions and the actions that, that we do around us, things that drive us every day. And then we see the, the actual work that we do. Um, So it's important to remember that that this book, like I said earlier, is being written near the later years of the author's life from a view in which we're seeing all of this from 
This view is from a man that has lived life to its fullest. And he's now sitting near the end of his life with the reality of death knocking at his door. The realization of death and of his passing, his physical passing, is a very real and intimate concept to him as he looks back on everything. But again, I think the Lord used Solomon in that state um, as a great purpose. It has a great purpose for us today because how often do we as Christians say that we should be living life, we should be viewing life as if we're to die tomorrow? Death, well, sorry about that. Pardon me. Death, death is the great equalizer. And we see this concept over and over again in this book. We're going to, we see it in chapter two uh, last week. There, there's death, there's a cycle of death in there. Chapter 3, we're going to see this, and in chapter 9 as well, we're mentioned that death is a great equalizer. The author of Psalm 49, the sons of Korah, also had this realization. So if you look up in Psalm 49, just write it down. He writes that both man and beast will experience the same end. The truth is we are all going to die one day. Thank you for sticking with me. So with all of this in mind... Let's, let's look closer to our specific portion today. Now, I've titled the sermon today, The Faithful Worker's Great Reward. Uh, not because of what we're going to see at the beginning of this text. Um, it's more towards the end, and hopefully this becomes more clear as we get there. Now, to be clear, the term worker applies to everyone. This doesn't mean just those who have a career or an occupation. This applies to our, our college and career group, who don't have a career yet, you are a worker for God. Uh, this applies to our domestic engineers, our stay-at-home moms and some stay-at-home dads maybe. You are a worker for God, and it includes even those who haven't confessed a faith in Christ. Whether you accept it or not, you're a tool of God. You're a worker of God. So here we have the worker's empty promise. So in verses 16 through 21 of chapter 2, we actually see the darkness and despair that is overtaking Solomon as he looks back on all of his life's work, all of his acquisitions, everything he's done, everything he has. The reaction of despair might not seem so crazy to us as we stare death in the face. Um, but as a believer, we... We look forward to death because we get to be with Jesus. Uh, we get to stand in his presence and his glory. If we don't have eternity in our minds or a faith in Jesus, death can be very real and depressing. You, you are going to leave everything here. There's nothing to look forward to. You're going to turn into ash and dust in, in the ground, and that's, the, that's it. The reality of leaving life and death can be very difficult for some to grasp because whether we acknowledge it or not, we all kind of have goals and, it, and things we want to achieve in life. It's generally called a bucket list. So whether you call it a bucket list or not, you, you probably all have a bucket list. There's things that you want to see done. Uh, for the college and career for younger, it might be to just get married. I want to have a, a, a fruitful marriage in God's design and see what that's like. Uh, perhaps it's a, a dream vacation that you want to go on. You want to go visit a, a Beautiful, picturesque, sandy beach with crystal blue water uh, all the way to the horizon and palm trees down the stretch of the beach with um, 
nothing but the sun on top of you. That might be nice. Or for some mountain climbers, it could be to stand at the peak of a mountain and gaze upon the, the glory of God, just the stretches of mountain ranges as they reach up to the sky. It might be something different as simple as the purchase of a sports car. Some of us have in mind a certain car we like, one we've always dreamed of as a kid. That might be on your bucket list to buy that special car. Um, or maybe for some new age people, it's to be on the first public flight into space. Who knows? Everyone has different aspirations or something that we look forward to in the future. In all of this, in all these things, these aspirations, these goals in mind, worldly wisdom has promised us satisfaction. But even at that promise, that promise of satisfaction in all of this world's acquisitions, it falls short. Everything that we think we want in life will leave us unsatisfied. You're going to want something bigger or better. You're going to achieve that. You're going to look to what's next. Even when you do rarely, even when you do achieve that, so rarely does it satisfy you long enough to where you are, you are sustained. It, it just doesn't do that. The, the analogy I, I had in my mind is, uh, as a kid, you would see a commercial for a toy, and they make it look awesome on the commercials, and the second you buy that toy, it's, it's, it's like nothing compared to what it was. Or, or one that we can uh, see as a, a grown adult is a hamburger. Like in the advertisements, they look awesome. You have a beautiful glossy bun, you have green leaf lettuce, Pickles hanging out, mustard, ketchup, whatever condiments you like on there, beef patties, cheese melted over. That's what you see in the commercial. And then you get it, and it's, it's like dark brown or it's beige, the bun. It might have some lettuce somewhere. Ketchup and mustard is nowhere to be found, and, and it's not even smeared across the whole bun. And uh, you're, you'd be blessed to have three pickles on there. And if you get it a, on a good day, like the cheese landed somewhere in the middle of the patty. It didn't just... It's like half on and half it's on the container you got it in. Like, <laughs> what a letdown. Life is not as advertised in social media or on Facebook or Instagram. If they were to tell you the truth about what life really is, it would probably come out like we thought Ecclesiastes was. Dark, depressing, is going to leave us feeling raw. Thankfully, that's not what the book is, despite what we think about it. So if those social media platforms actually gave you life what it was like, I guarantee you their ratings, their, their money stream, everything that they have would just tank. They would not be a successful business. So they sell you satisfaction. They want to sell you what life looks like in a picturesque world. So what do we do with all this stuff that's going to leave us unsatisfied and we acquire it and we have it? What do you do with it at the end of your life? Well, the reality is, and it's a sad reality, that it is worth nothing to you. It is worth nothing to you in your death. There's nothing you can do with it. There's nothing you can take with it. I read a few times that, uh, in commentaries, Billy Graham said you can't take the U-Haul to the funeral. Like, it doesn't come with you. And as an even bigger downer, 
Take a look at verse 11 of chapter 1. It says, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. And then in chapter 2, verse 16, for the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. And it's, it's this fact of the author leaving all of his physical wealth everything behind, everything that he's toiled, everything that he's, he's worked for, it has to be left behind for someone else. He's left empty and unsatisfied near the end of his life. Verse 18 through 20 says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and use my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. So now he's looked back on all of his life's work, everything we have described for us as he, he sat there and flaunted it in chapters 1 through 2. And what does he say about it? Verse 17, so I hated life. Verse 18, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun. Verse 20, so I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labor under the sun. So why is it that Kohelet hated his life and his work? Like, didn't he have everything? Didn't he say he acquired everything? He cheered himself with wine and pleasure and everything that this world has to offer. He lived life to its fullest. Like, what is it about our work that drives us mad? Well, in a world lived under the sun, apart from God, without him, and with worldly wisdom guiding our path, the satisfaction in this stuff is fleeting. It's, it's Havel. You, you can't grasp it. You can't, you can't hold that satisfaction in your hand. Like smoke or vapor, it disappears from us, leaving nothing behind. Furthermore, when we leave it behind, we don't even know what's going to happen to it. We're very unsure. This seems to bother a lot of, some people more than others. Uh, we take a lot of time to make sure life insurance is all paid up. Uh, that we've micromanaged the placement of, of all of our assets to different ministries, to family, uh, to whomever you choose. But how do we know that what we've worked for, what we're leaving behind, what we've sweat for, what we've toiled for, what we've cried over is going to be received with thankfulness and that it's going to be used to actually further the kingdom of God? This is what he, state, what he means when he states that he doesn't know if the person coming after him will be wise or a fool. And I challenge you to think about this this week. Uh, what will it actually matter to you when you die and you're in the presence of God, worshiping him and his splendor? If we truly trust in his sovereignty, 
if we do what we say, if we believe what we say, don't we also believe that he will faithfully supply for the needs of everyone that pleases him after each one of us dies and passes? Do we actually believe that? Like, don't get me wrong here. Like, we are all called to be good stewards of everything that the Lord has given us. Um, but, but remember that Solomon, our author, he doesn't have an eternal view here. He's not seeing life with God. He's clinging to what he has in this physical world, his worldly wealth and everything he's acquired. He's clinging to his physical legacy and what he's going to leave behind. So how much stock do we have in the physical acquisition of stuff in this world? Like how much stock do we put in that? Let's look back at Jesus. Jesus certainly didn't have any from what I can see in my research. Correct me if I'm wrong. But uh, think with me for a minute about what we know regarding his teachings, because some of these you've already heard. I'm going to rattle these off. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. That's Matthew 6. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Matthew 8. Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And he's referring to gaining the inheritance that's his. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. It's Matthew 8. And then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. It's from Mark 12. So I think it's obvious from those teachings, Jesus did not, he did not cling to the things of this world because he, he truly believed and he knew that he was not of this world. The author of Ecclesiastes doesn't have the opportunity that we have to see this full story in its entirety. We don't have, he didn't have the full redemptive story at his disposal like we do. But he should have known what he was supposed to do as a king. Um, Brian alluded to this, that it's outlined in Deuteronomy 5 and 6, and, and most of the book of Deuteronomy for that matter, that as a king, he was supposed to have written, like physically handwritten these things out so that he would be in full knowledge and remembrance of the statutes and how to obey them. Now, we don't, we don't do chalkboard exercises anymore where we write things over and over again, but it might be good for us to do some of that in, in the fact that we could remember our duty and what we need to observe. But the fact of the matter is that we will be leaving everything physical here on earth in our death. We are not taking any of, any of it with us. But by God's grace, everything that we need in eternity will be provided for us. So we can rest assured in, in that fact. But if we don't have eternity in our perspectives then death can feel very daunting and depressing. And in verse 21, Kohelet says that he turned to despair over this fact because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. He says this is also vanity and a great evil. 
So before we move on, I, I want to go through this exercise looking back at the passage. Let's go all the way back to the top of verse, verse 17 here. And we're going to focus on an aspect that's going to change our thinking about this. And it's going to unlock some wisdom here near the end of the day. So we're going to read verses 17 through 21, and I'm going to really emphasize this time under the sun. Every time we see this Hebraism in here. Remember that it, it, it means a life lived apart from God. He's, he's describing how, what life is like without God. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and is striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to a man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and use my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. So he carries on in this theme. And now we have the workers' sleepless nights. So if it wasn't bad enough already, we're kind of promised that you're going to toss and turn in your bed thinking about all this depression all night long. <laughs> so hang tight. So Kohelet's been brought low into despair. And in this state, in his lowliness, he's asking an important question. And we, we pointed some things out in our small group that we're seeing them week after week in different things that repeat themselves, it was neat for me to see that this is a repeat question from a question that was asked earlier in chapter 1, verse 3. So verse 22 starts us off with a reference back to the beginning of the book, and it reads, What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? And he asked this early on in the book. This was very early in the book he asked this. The answer comes right after it in verse 23. This is what you get for all your striving of heart under the sun. For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. So apart from God, under the sun, everything that we work for is smoke or vapor. It's, it's empty, it's fleeting, as easily as it comes to us, it, it's going to disappear from us, leaving us with nothing. But not only that, not only does it leave us with nothing, our, our days are going to be full of sorrow and our nights of vexation. So if you're like me, I, I didn't actually know what vexation means, so I had to look it up. So vexation means to provoke or to make angry. The common references for this word are mostly used in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy with about 80% of it being used with involvement with Yahweh being provoked to anger. So this isn't by chance that this word is used here. God's word is very intentional. It's used to show us the seriousness of how troubled we can become working for nothing or for no gain. It would drive a person mad. But even when there is some gain, 
Like I said, it's rarely enough to satisfy or calm our soul. Nothing in this world is going to satisfy us enough to where we're not provoked to anger, where we're not brought up and stirred up and, and restless. An appropriate contrast here uh, that came to my mind is Jesus, when he's sleeping on a boat and there's a storm raging around him. We're going to turn to that passage in Matthew 8. And the, the, the disciples some of which were very experienced fishermen. That was their life's trade. They said that they were perishing. Lord, we're perishing. So there's a storm, a storm so strong that they're about to die, and Jesus is laying there sleeping. He's snug as a bug in a rug. So let's turn to Matthew 8, verses 23 through 27. Matthew 8, 23 through 27, Jesus calms a storm. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? So looking here at the life of Jesus, his, his calmness, his faith, this is vastly different from what we're seeing here in Ecclesiastes, where Quahelet's mind is. Like, how often do we lay awake at night wondering worrying, anxious about what tomorrow is going to bring. So being calm in the storms of life, it, it is it's much easier said than it is actually doing that, being done. We are all human. We're all guilty of this, I think, from time to time, worrying about what tomorrow will bring, trying to plan for the future. It's wise to do some of those things. But imagine for me tonight that you were going to go to sleep like Jesus was asleep. Full faith in your mind that the Lord has you in his hand. He will provide for you. He will take care of everything that you're worried, everything that you're anxious about. He will take care of you. When you wake up in the morning, what, like, what would that be like to go to sleep like that tonight? Well, for some of us, it would feel amazing. Some of us need that kind of sleep. What are we doing to ourselves with all this stress and anxiety? We're told to pour it out on Jesus, to lay it at his feet. Are we actually doing that? Do we truly believe that the Lord is sovereign? Do we truly know that he is in control of all things? Do, are, are we believing that? Lord, help us with our unbelief. Thank you for coming with me to this, this low place. <coughs> Kohelet is, is depressed. There is emptiness, there's dissatisfaction in his life, and it's something that we can all feel because it's real. But let's work our way out of this together. There is an antidote in the text. 
and I'm excited for it. So there is divine wisdom, a little nugget for us to take home here. So that comes in our next topic, which is the worker's satisfaction. Turn back to Ecclesiastes, we'll read verses 24 and 25. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can have enjoyment? So I read a lot of commentaries on this section, and I came across this one story that I think just, like, it gave me some intense imagery of the state of Solomon, and so I couldn't help but to to write it in here. So I'm going to read this for you guys. This is what the author writes. Before the collapse of the Soviet Union, the Russian author Alexander Solzhenitsyn spent many years in the prison camps of Siberia. Along with other prisoners, he worked in the fields day after day, in rain and sun during summer and winter. His life appeared to be nothing more than a back-breaking labor and slow starvation. The intense suffering reduced him to a state of despair. And on one particular day, the hopelessness of his situation became too much for him. He saw no reason to continue his struggle, no reason to keep on living. His life made no difference in the world. So he gave up. Leaving his shovel on the ground, he slowly walked. Oh boy. I lost a page here. Sorry, see if I can find it. <laughs> I don't have it. Yeah, can you pull it up real quick, Brian? Sorry, guys. I got one page that got left somewhere. Thanks for being so fast. All right, here we are. Sorry. Leaving his shovel on the ground, he slowly walked to a crude bench and sat down. He knew that at any moment... A guard would order him to stand up. And when he failed to respond, the guard would beat him to death, probably with his own shovel. He had seen it happen to other prisoners. The author continues to write, Solomon is also in despair. He's at the end of his rope. He's hit rock bottom, and he's enveloped by darkness. He has nowhere to turn, and he has no answers to life's meaning. He hates life. But amazingly, it's at this point in the king's desperate and bleak existence that God reveals his truth to the king. How often the sinner must be broken before God opens his eyes to see the truth. As Corey Ten Boom once commented, there is no pit deep enough that he is not deeper still. So how many people have been humbled and brought to their knees in despair before God then shows them the truth? God can use despair to, pr to prod people to the truth, and that is the case with the preacher.
So he reads here, there is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. So at the surface level of this, this verse here, it kind of rings familiar, familiar in our head. Probably goes something like eat, drink, and be merry. Well, it's probably another way that Ecclesiastes has infiltrated our culture today. That's worldly wisdom. Let's look at the divine wisdom. Eat, drink, and find enjoyment in his to- toil. What Quohelet is really saying, this also, look right after it, this also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? So a more literal reading of that second part of the text there would actually read as this. There is no good in man that he should be able to eat, drink, or get satisfaction from his work. So that's a more literal, literal translation of that text there. What that's saying is that the author is now understanding that there is nothing intrinsic or innate in man, in ourselves, that it would provide for us any satisfaction or pleasure or fulfillment in our work. There is nothing that we can do for ourselves to provide satisfaction or fulfillment. He realizes, and we we all have to realize this, that we are not the source of these things. We're not the source of satisfaction in life. We ourselves are not the source of pleasure, and we ourselves are not the source of fulfillment. But in reality, it is all from the hand of God. I saw is from the hand of God. Apart from him or under the sun, who can have enjoyment? We, we can't do it apart from our creator. We will never be satisfied. Keep your eyes. If you're going to stick through us with this whole study, you're going to keep coming to church. I hope you do. Keep your eyes open and your ears open and keen for this refrain again. Eat, drink, and find enjoyment. Because you're going to see it about five more times in the book. It's, it's a refrain that echoes throughout the book like a chorus to a hymn. It just keeps coming back and it keeps coming back and it keeps coming back because it underscores uh, the central message of this book. One of the central messages. This refrain answers a question that Solomon has been wrestling with regarding the meaning of life as he wrestles through all of this in chapters one and two. So it's simple. Here's here's the meaning to life. I'm going to give you this nugget to take away. Eat and drink and make your soul enjoy the good of its labor because these things are a gift from God. We can find enjoyment in them because they're from God. There is purpose, there is meaning, and yes, there's even joy in this life when it's founded upon a relationship to the Creator. Let me repeat that. There's... There's purpose, meaning, and even joy in this life when it is founded upon our relationship to the Creator. When He is our groundwork, He is our framework, He is what we set ourselves on, that's when we find our satisfaction. That's where we find our joy. So as a closing to this this section of text, this massive introduction, so if you're you're not with me. If you've gone astray a little bit, come back. We're going we're gonna to try to land this airplane here. 
Um, we see the author shows us that there's certain cycles of life that apparently repeat themselves. And here we're going to see another little cycle of life, just like the ones we saw in the beginning. There's flows that come back and around. Um, we're going to see here that we saw the meaningless of life and all of its toil. That's, where, that's what brought us to despair. And now we see the satisfaction that we have in God, knowing that it's all from him. And when we, when we attribute everything to God, we see this from him. A reminder that I had was the, uh, the life on missions. I don't know how many of you guys did that in your small groups, but it starts out from God's design, and then it works its way over to brokenness and sin, and then it works its way down uh, to faith in Christ, and then there's redemption in the relationship, and it's a, it's a big cycle, and it works its way back in together. Well, these are some of the cycles that God's created. Oh, there it is. I had the page backwards. Sorry, that's, there's my missing page. <laughs> so let's look at verse 26. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and is striving after wind. So the actual words here that he used, there's two words used that contrast each other, the one who pleases God and the sinner. In Hebrew, it was the word tob and hot, so they're very different. Tob being one who is favored or pleasing and receives all the good things in life. That's, literal, that's its literal definition a person who receives all the good things in life, symbolized here by wisdom, knowledge, and pleasure. And this is contrasted by the offender, or one who misses the mark, called the sinner. It's, it's crazy what things stick with you from certain sermons. I remember a sermon that said, described to us the definition of the word sin, and it is to actually miss the mark. So it's a literal translation here of a sinner. This is also marked by a reference to Proverbs 13.22, where we see this as well. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. So what do we do with everything that we've, we've learned here today? What do we do with everything that we've learned in the first four weeks of this journey through Ecclesiastes? What's, what's the big application that we can take away with us today? Uh, what do I want you to leave here remembering? Uh, what do we learn from a man who's exposed us to his world of extravagant living to come to tell us what we probably already knew, that it's all meaningless if we don't attribute it to God, that a life lived without God is meaningless. We know these things. What, do we, what can we walk away with today? <laughs> Again, like our bumper video says, the answer comes in chapter 12, verse 13. Like any good mystery novel, the answer comes at the end of the book. The end of this book, chapter 12, verse 13, it says, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Fear God, keep his commandments. What does that mean to fear God? It means to revere him, be in reverence of him. It means to be afraid. He, he is the creator. 
Stand in awe of him. Be awed by him. Honor him. Respect him. Be astonished by him. Gaze upon his creation and his glory and be amazed. God, you are amazing. This is what it means to fear him. Know that he is the sovereign creator of all things and that he holds eternity in his hand. He is God. So Jesus says in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In doing those two things, the entirety of the law is fulfilled. But as a New Testament believer, let's live out our life like it's described here in Hebrews 10. So listen to me. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confessions of our hope without wavering, For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. If you're here today and you are a believer in Christ, it is your duty to walk in faith with him, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's your, that's your duty, to revere him. But if you haven't confessed a faith in him, if you're here today and you're not a believer in Christ, as is stated in Proverbs 13, 22 and verse 26, you have the unhappy business of gathering. Your work, your labor, your toil is going to be empty and vain, only to have it given to those who walk faithfully with him. Your promised empty work, your promised sleepless nights, and your toil is for nothing. So turn to him in repentance. Confess your sins to him. He is faithful. He is faithful. And commit your life to him. Because he is the only source of our joy. He is the only source of our satisfaction during all the days here on earth. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this opportunity to be here and to stand in awe of you, to revere you, Father, to worship you in song, in reading of your word, and in community, Father. Pray that we would leave here after being brought low, um, replenished with truth that you are faithful to forgive, that you will supply for us our needs, Father. Help us to rest assured in that and to sleep well knowing that you are the sovereign God.
I pray all this in your mighty name, Jesus Christ. Amen.